What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. After the limbs of these people were removed, the killer placed them separately into two 45-gallon blue Sterlite containers. And then he covered them with a corrosive substance and left them there to liquefy into uh, some sort of diabolical stew of human remains. And then John jokingly said, well, what if it's a body? We checked it out. We could only see the head and uh, the left hand sticking out of the mud had rings on it. And apparently she had died screaming. There is rarely any warning to murder. People don't get a feeling beforehand that this is the last time they will see their loved one alive. It just happens, and suddenly, that person is gone, forever now in memories rather than real life. Their dreams and aspirations will never be achieved. No more conversations, no more planning and time spent with family. There is just cold silence. The act of murder is not something that can be graded. The taking of a life cannot be ranked or put on a scale. But there are some murders that are more horrifying and more gruesome than others. Within our society, humans continue to daze and disgust with the levels of depravity they willfully sink to. These are dark crimes, obscure, black and devilish acts of extreme violence carried out by the most unforeseen of individuals. Listener, the case you are about to hear is the darkest I've covered this season. The acts carried out behind closed doors in this case are among the most heinous acts that can be imagined. 2016 in Knoxville, Tennessee, a loving family had their world ripped apart. Evil entered their lives in the days after Thanksgiving that year. They could never have known it was coming. 
There were no warning signs. There's a saying that's often banded around, that it's the quiet ones we have to watch and look out for. This case is an example of why sometimes that statement is absolutely true. Microphone down and just play it through your speakers, unplug your HDMI. On Monday, November 28, 2016, at 9.38 a.m., with a GMT offset of negative 300 minutes, agent ID extension is 203. Uh, yes, I have an employee that um, has not reported for work today, and highly unlike her. I've tried calling her home number, I've tried calling cell phone, and can't get a hold of her. What can we do about that? Can somebody go by and check on them? Yeah, do you know her address? I do, I do. It, it is 11434 Golden View Lane. My name is Jennifer Whited, W-H-I-T-E-D. And what company are you with? Jacobs Engineering. And what's the good call back for you guys? It is 865-216-6625. Okay, what's the employee's name? Lisa. Guy, G-U-Y. Her husband's name is Joel, J-O-E-L. Should he be there too? Does he live with her? Yes, he does. Okay. And they do have a, a dog named Jake. I think he's a big baby. Okay. How old is he, do you know? She is in her, I think, late 50s. Do you know if she has any medical issues? No, I mean she has high blood pressure, but that's all. That's all that I know of. Yeah, I know that their house is for sale and they are moving, and she is leaving our company. But that's supposed to be Friday, and this definitely isn't like her just not to show up. On Monday, November 28, 2016, as a Knoxville non-emergency dispatcher typed in the details of Lisa Guy, no one knew how worried to be. Jennifer Whited was Lisa's supervisor at the Jacobs Engineering offices in Oak Ridge, about 25 miles from Knoxville. Lisa had not arrived for work as expected. Her colleagues were extra concerned. They had lunch planned for that day. That week was to be Lisa's last in her role as a disbursement specialist for the company. At 55 years old, she was going to be officially retiring on that very Friday. Jennifer continued to call Lisa on her cell phone and landline numbers, hoping she would pick up. She even tried her husband, Joel Guy Sr., but she got no answer there either. There was a twisting sensation in her stomach. 
It was a physical reaction, an instinct that was telling her something was very wrong. Officer Stephen Baller from the Knox County Sheriff's Office was a canine officer in Knoxville. His patrol area covered Golden View Lane, where Lisa lived. He was the first officer to go to number 11434 to check on Lisa's welfare. That area of town was a beautiful street of well-kept, spacious, detached homes. It was a low-crime rate area, with friendly neighbors, plenty of dog owners and dog walkers, and no trouble at all to speak of. When Officer Baller arrived at the guy's home, all appeared to be fine. The house is a two-story home with a large garage and a small front yard setting the property back a little from the street. The guys had just sold the house, the for sale sign still in place in the front yard. Both Lisa and her 61-year-old husband, Joel Sr., were retiring. They wanted to spend their time together, doing what they enjoyed, having a more relaxed way of life. The couple had been married for 31 years and were still very much in love. They planned to move back to Joel Sr.'s hometown of Sir Goinsville, situated 87 miles away. When Officer Baller arrived at the Golden View Lane house, two red cars sat in the driveway in front of the wide-door white garage. Around the back of the home, a well-kept yard housed a dog kennel and a back wooden veranda. Despite repeated knocks, calls, and rings at the doorbell, no one came to the door. Officer Baller left the property to continue on his patrol rounds. By late morning, Jennifer had heard nothing back from law enforcement. She was still worried with no word from her colleague and friend. She called the police unit back and requested a second visit to the guy's home, stressing her feeling that something was very wrong. She also contacted Lisa's stepdaughter, Michelle Tyler, through Facebook, asking if she had heard from Lisa or dad. For the first time, Michelle got information something might be wrong with her dad and stepmother. This time, the information about the concerns for Lisa Guy's welfare were passed on to a detective. The longer the day went on, with no news of Lisa, the more likely it seemed that Jennifer Whited had been right. Something was very wrong with Lisa and Joel Guy. Detective McCord was a seasoned detective with Knox County. He had a gut feeling the more he learned about this case. Something didn't feel right. He arrived at Golden View Lane after speaking with Jennifer Whited directly to gain as much information about Lisa Guy that he could. Walking up to the front door, a few steps up from the ground with black railings on either side, he peered inside through the stained pattern glass insert that was in the door. He could see the outline of groceries on the floor, multiple bags with items spilled out, perishables left seemingly without a care. The door itself felt warm to the touch, unusually warm, with no answer at the front. Detective McCord rounded the corner of the house and climbed the back fence, heading up the wooden steps to the veranda and around the small garden furniture. He reached the back door of the house. It too felt very warm. The back door was not as it should be. The doorknob had been completely removed, leaving nothing but an empty circle right through the door where it should have been. Crouching down to look, the detective had a direct view of the groceries lying in the foyer. Behind the front door. Everything else looked normal, but his other senses were picking up warning signals. They were sending him waves of apprehension the longer he was outside that house. Looking through the space and into the house had meant putting his face up against the wooden door. 
He had immediately been hit by a powerful heat coming from inside the house. It was a late November day in Knoxville. The weather was calm, but it was chilly and windy. There was a distinct difference in air temperature coming from inside the guy home. Temperature that seemed abnormal and out of place. Detective McCord also detected a smell that he was struggling to identify. It was strong and potent. Had a chemical burn feeling at the back of your throat and the top of your nostrils. The detective and officers who had now joined him continued to shout for anyone inside the house. Calling through the door that they were police officers there for a welfare check. Their efforts were met with silence. Detective McCord knew they needed to gain entry. Although the for sale sign was clearly in the front yard. There was no real estate lockbox on the front or the back door. Calling the realtor confirmed. There had been a lockbox on the back door prior to the Thanksgiving holiday. Running out of options to gain entry, Officer Graves, who was attending the scene, was able to open one of the vehicles on the driveway. Inside was a key fob to the garage door. Carefully, with guns drawn, Detective Jeremy McCord and Officer Stephen Baller, with two further officers behind them, began to make their way through the garage. Tucked in the far corner was a white-painted door, the internal door connecting the garage to the house. The door was shut, but it was not locked. The heat in the garage was intense. The smell of chemicals had heightened, drawing both suspicion and fear from officers. They could hear a dog barking from somewhere inside the house. By now, they all knew they were going to find something inside. They had no idea what or who. As they made their way into the house... They continued calling out their presence. smell became almost overpowering. The door had opened into the kitchen of the guy residence. Immediately, as they stepped inside, they were met with a pile of chemical containers, rags and garbage bags on the floor by their feet. One container was clearly labeled with toxic symbols next to the words, muriatic acid, a less pure and diluted version of hydrochloric acid. Other containers were empty bottles of bleach, the smell that hung in the air was a mixture of overpowering substances, all competing with each other in the stagnant air. Walking further into the kitchen, they were met with a gallery-style layout. Clean white units with pale marble-type worktops and a black stovetop with a silver-fronted oven. Units lay at either side of the walkway, 
On one side was the sink, on the other was the oven. The sink was most of the way filled with a clear liquid. Through sight alone, it was impossible to tell if it was water or a chemically diluted substance. In the liquid was the doorknob and realtor box that had been missing from the back door. The worktops were messy with food boxes and surgical gloves scattered around. On the small kitchen table was a woman's purse and two wallets. One belonged to Lisa Guy, and the other belonged to Joel Guy Sr. Both were lying open. Next to them, in the middle of the table, was a hammer. On the stove was a large gray, well-used stockpot. It's lit in place, and the stove was turned on. Whatever was inside that pot was bubbling gently. As officers moved their way through the kitchen, they didn't lift the lid to look inside. Through an open archway, the officers found themselves in the dining room. As they looked around, they could see gun cases in the corner of the room. Long material style cases for safely storing long barreled guns. On the large dining room table, neatly laid out next to each other, were three guns. Next to them, a screwdriver and a doorknob lock set. Boxes of ammunition sat on the floor. As Detective McCord was leading the officers through the guy home, their feeling of uneasiness was turning to heavy fear. The stony silence broken only by the repeated barks of the family's dog, Jake, who appeared to be shut in somewhere. The smell, the chemical bottles, the messy areas and random items left out on display. It was enough to instill a foreboding in the officers, a heightened emotion they could do nothing with except battle to keep under control. As they pushed on through the house, the temperature across the ground floor was unbearably hot which didn't help the sense of unease. In the hallway connecting to the foyer area, they found a thermostat on the wall. Controlling the temperature for the ground floor, it was set to 90 degrees. The officers carefully stepped over the groceries on the foot of the stairs, behind the front door, and began to slowly climb. Still intermittently shouting their presence, they by now lost any expectation of getting a response. As they carefully ascended the stairs, their worst fears began to be realized. As officers neared the top, they discovered blood splatter on the carpet and up the walls. A pile of women's clothes were on the top floor of the landing, surrounded by a deep red blood stain, which had been spreading through the carpet in an oval shape. A large kitchen knife, covered in blood, was tucked partially under the clothing Bottles and tubs lay haphazard, almost leading the officer's eyes further up the hallway. Each room was visually scanned for any signs of human life, the homeowners or a possible perpetrator. The only noise was the officer's breathing, their low exclamations of shock as each new visual sight came into their line of view. Right. 
Furthest away from the stairs at the end of the hallway, the most gruesome scene was waiting for them. A single cot bed on one side of the room was shadowed by a large fitness machine, taking up most of the space on the opposite side. In the corner, directly ahead of the doorway, was an area of blood staining. It was on the floor, up the walls. Blood was sprayed and splattered along each of the walls, leading away from the corner. Dark stains had collected and then seeped out on the carpet, slowly creeping from the corner area and into the room itself. A few feet away, sitting on the carpet not far from the window, were a pair of human hands, placed almost overlapping each other. They had been amputated at the wrists. There was no sign of the person those hands belonged to. In front of the exercise machine was another pile of clothes, men's clothes with a packet of cigarettes looking almost placed carefully on top. Two knives lay nearby, covered in blood. This room had been a scene of a violent and deadly struggle, but that wasn't the most shocking scene the officers found on that morning. The master bedroom of the home was just down the hall from the exercise room at the end. Detective McCord 
As the highest-ranking officer in scene, he led the other officers through the guy home, still with the foreboding sense of unease and fear rising inside. His fear turned to horror as he continued to go through the upstairs, clearing the dogs barking on and off. He goes into the master bedroom, and he sees in the floor a weird assorted jumble of articles that don't even appear to be used. There's a bag of clothes. There is a work light. There's a sledgehammer. There's a like a portable heater that you can clamp on. It clamps on to a, a surface. There's a face mask that looks sort of like what you would one would use to do painting, uh, a more protective mask than the one that I'm wearing. Um, there's a blender and a box of latex gloves, a black garbage bag. A roll of plastic sheeting is on the, the bed, which is made. Well, it was made and tidy. And uh, beanie babies, pile of beanie babies on the carpet next to all of this. Um, and other articles. I'm, I'm not sure that I'm remembering all of them. Um, bottles of food-grade hydrogen peroxide, like jugs, big jugs, a jug of liquid fire, which is uh, the drain opener. Uh, back in the hall, next to Lisa's clothing, there were three empty big gallon, five gallon, I'm not sure how many gallon tubs of something called sewer line cleaner number two, and a bottle of an empty bottle of Robic uh, drain opening solution. Um, that was in the hall. So back to the master bedroom. All of these weird, unusual products are here. And the master bath door is open. The floor of the master bath coated in plastic, the same plastic sheeting cut from the sheeting that was uh, left on the bed. Um, a garden hose connected to the shower head a heater running full blast, a knife in the sink, and the remains of uh, what appeared to be human beings. At the time, Detective McCord will tell you he didn't know how many, who they were. Uh, he didn't know what he was dealing with. Two large blue plastic tubs sat side by side, blocking access to the corner path behind them. Up against the wall, in the small gap that remained before the wall, was another freestanding header. Turned on high, it was blasting out hot air. The vanity unit was covered in gloves, tissues, wrappers, and empty bottles, and the sink was a large blood-stained kitchen knife. As officers looked closer at the tubs in front of them, they slowly understood what they were looking at. Female torso and amputated limbs in one and a male torso and limbs in the other. Both were surrounded and almost entirely covered with heavy, rancid, foul liquid. The smell emitting from these tubs was a horrific mix of bleach, acids, and drain cleaner chemicals. The concoction was so strong and corrosive, skin was being dissolved and area of bone were disintegrating. There was little doubt that these were the remains of Lisa and Joel Guy Sr., the killer had left their bodies submerged in these liquid mixtures in order to destroy the evidence. To dissolve their bodies in the chemical mix 
eroding any evidence at the same time. The severed hands found in the room up the hall were believed to be those of Joel Guy Sr. Downstairs in the kitchen, the stockpot was still bubbling on the stove. Such a large object dominated in the fairly small kitchen. Officers knew they had to lift the lid to see what was cooking inside. Nothing could have prepared them for what they saw. Sitting in the middle, half-balancing in clear liquid filling most of the pot, was the severed head of Lisa Guy. Lisa Guy had been brutally attacked and murdered on the landing at the top of the stairs. She had been stabbed over 30 times in her back, with 21 separate injuries to her front, found on her ribcage. Her clothes had been cut off her body with a pair of scissors before she was dismembered. Her arms were removed at the shoulders and her legs at the knees. Her head had been cut cleanly from her neck and shoulders. The blood stains on the walls of the stairwell, first spotted by the first responding officers and Detective McCord, were the splashes of blood that hit the walls as the killer carried Lisa's severed head downstairs into the kitchen. Joel Guy Sr., Lisa's 61-year-old husband, was most likely already dead when his wife was attacked. The exercise room bared the results of a vicious fight, one with multiple injuries and a lot of blood loss. Joel Sr. had put up a fight against his attacker, but armed with a knife and a clear determination to kill, Joel Sr. had no chance of winning that fight. He was stabbed at least 42 times. He, too, had been dismembered. His hands removed at the wrists and left on the floor. Both arms and legs removed from the shoulder and hip joints. His right foot had also been amputated. Lisa and Joel Guy Sr. were a couple who had big plans. They had both been looking forward to their retirement, spending time with their children and grandchildren and each other. Just that weekend, Joel Sr. had moved his boat to the Sir Goinsville house with the help of his son. Joel Sr. had been married before he met Lisa and had three children with his first wife. All girls. They were all close with their dad and looked at Lisa like a second mother. Lisa and Joel had met and got together. There was Shandice and twins Michelle and Angela. Lisa and Joel had met and got together when the twins were around three years old. They didn't remember life without Lisa in it. All three girls lived in Tennessee, as did a lot of Lisa and Joel's immediate family. Joel and Lisa had one child of their own, Joel Michael Guy Jr., who had been born in 1988. Joel Michael was attending college at Louisiana State University. Now 28 years old, he had been studying on and off for years and lived in an apartment in Baton Rouge. Joel Michael was part of a loving family. The guys were always in touch and chatting with each other. Joel Sr. was a joker. He was the life in the family, keeping everyone upbeat and amused by his jokes, stories, and joyous fun outlook on life. But Joel Michael didn't blend as well with this family unit. He was shy, and he wasn't as comfortable in groups or in social settings. Even if the other people there were his family members... Joel wasn't part of the family online chat groups. He didn't text different family members regularly to check in. In fact, when there were family gatherings and Joel was there, he'd stay in his room and out of the way. His stepsisters didn't feel they knew him at all. He was fairly reclusive. But that was just Joel. That's the way he was. There was more to Joel Michael and how he lived his life 
You see, he wasn't an independent 28-year-old. Lisa and Joel Sr. were still supporting their son financially. They were paying for his apartment and his studies. They gave him money for groceries and gas for his car. Joel Michael didn't work. He didn't have any employment that paid him a wage. He relied solely on the support of his parents to pay his bills and to give him general living money for anything that he wanted. Lisa especially adored Joel Michael. She would have done anything for her son. The one holiday of the year where all the family did come together was Thanksgiving. Falling just the weekend before Lisa was due to retire in 2016, gave the couple some time to focus on packing up the house and making some arrangements for their move to Sir Goinsville. They were excited and looking forward to their new, more relaxed and enjoyable way of life. On Wednesday, November 23rd, Joel Michael drove from his apartment in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 654 miles to his parents' home in Knoxville, Tennessee. With no stops, that's a nine-hour road trip. His 2006 gray Hyundai Sonata seemed to cope well with the journey. The following day, his stepsister Michelle Tyler and her three young sons came for dinner, along with his other two sisters. The day was spent in much the same way as most family events in the Guy household. Laughter at Joel Sr.'s stories, and banter was always at the forefront. Joel Michael didn't usually join in. He would stay in his old room, still with all his belongings in there from when he was younger. When other family members arrived, Joel Michael was more comfortable in his own company. But that Thanksgiving was different. Michelle was immediately surprised to see Joel Michael out of his room and interacting with everybody. He seemed relaxed and happy. He joked with her sons and took them upstairs to show them the boxes of his old toys letting them take their pick to take home with them. Joel Michael, for the first time Michelle had ever seen, was interacting and spending time with his family. It was such an unknown to Michelle, her reaction wasn't joy and happiness for Joel Michael. It was surprise, and then, just a feeling of how odd his behavior was, how out of character it was for him. She didn't even know before that day that Joel Michael knew the names of her sons, there was also a slight tension in the air over that November Thanksgiving day. Joel Sr.'s daughters all knew that Lisa and Joel Sr. provided for Joel Michael financially. They were aware that the couple retiring and moving to Sir Goinsville. They were aware that with the couple retiring and moving to Sir Goinsville, this was going to be a drastic change for their income. Lisa and Joel Sr. had spoken to family members about no longer paying everything for Joel Michael. They were going to be living on pensions after the move. At 28 years old, it's going to be time for Joel Michael to start supporting himself. On Monday, November 28th, Michelle was one of the first family members to be informed that her dad and Lisa had been murdered. Just days after spending the holiday with them, Michelle was facing a future without them. So Monday morning came and in our family, we have this thing to where we always answer text. You don't not double negative, but you always answer a text and um, no one had answered my text. So I'd spent, I had texted them, but then I came down with the stomach virus on Sunday. And, um, and so that it took me a minute to get over that, but I had to go to work on Monday. So when I got up for work on Monday, I was 
driving in and I don't know when I called my sister, but it, I know I was on the phone with my sister that morning. And I said, are you, are you all mad at me? Is somebody mad at me? It's not like my family, especially my dad and Lisa, they didn't have problems with, like they just made the intent to not have problems with people. Then they would never voice their problem with somebody. And so for them to not answer my text was really weird. And so I said, well, I told Angela, I'm going to, um, text them or wait on their response. And I'm not sure. I'm sure I texted them again or tried to call them. I believe by this point, their phones were going to voicemail. And they, um, I said, I'm going to go after work and check on them if they've not responded. And she said, okay, just let me know. And usually if we panicked like that, it always was, all, you know, at point, okay. And so I, I don't know the exact time, but about two, um, Jennifer had got in touch with me through Facebook and she had said, there's something wrong. You need to call me or, or, and I'm not sure her exact message. And so I called her and she said, you need to get a hold of the detectives. And so I called um, detective McCord and he said, you need to come meet me. And I was working. I can't remember. I don't think the school day was over. Cause I said, people had to get my class. I'm a teacher. And then I had to walk straight out the building and I collected my kids um, my, my own kids. And, um, he said, do not go to the house. And I said, okay. He said they didn't, he said the bodies were unidentifiable. And I said, well, if you will, um, when a crime of this magnitude is discovered, even by seasoned homicide detectives, there is a wave of disbelief at the sheer brutality involved. Depraved violence and mutilation inflicted on human beings by other human beings the guy household was now filled with blood, mutilated corpses and mountains of evidence strewn all over the large two-story home. Once a house with so many family memories, it was now a home forever tainted with the most horrific of scenes. Lisa and Joel Sr. were so close to that retirement dream. The house in Sir Goinsville Joel Sr. had bought was his own childhood family home. It held memories for him and his sisters that they wanted to remain in the family. Joel's senior sisters and extended family lived in the Sergoinsville area. They had been looking forward for months to the arrival of Joel Sr. and Lisa, to the fun times that they would all spend together now that they were going to live much closer. A family home nearby at the center to act as an anchor and host. Instead, they were told the gruesome, appalling news that Lisa and Joel had been murdered inside their home over Thanksgiving weekend. Back at the Knoxville house, specially trained officers and forensic teams began to painstakingly collect and document the evidence. Alongside the dismembered bodies of Lisa and Joel Sr., there are multiple areas of debris, mess, and blood staining. Several areas contain piles of chemical bottles and random items collected together in odd mountains seemingly unrelated to anything else inside the rooms they are in. The home itself was unbelievably warm. The downstairs thermostat had been set to 90 degrees, the upstairs thermostat to 95 degrees. There were multiple standalone heaters plugged in and set on full, pumping out hot air into each room. As each item was recovered, detectives were able to start following the trail the killer had left behind. A Walmart receipt was found in the guest bathroom upstairs. It listed medical items and first aid supplies, most of which seemed to be on the bathroom vanity top in the same place. 
The bag and receipt were surrounded by bloody tissues, medical gloves, and wound cleaners. The receipt was timestamped at 3.55 p.m. on Saturday the 26th, two days before Lisa and Joel's body were found. The crime scene at 11434 Golden View Lane was across the whole house. Almost every room had articles, objects, or blood evidence that required checking, photographing, and investigating. In the guest bedroom of the house, an item in the corner of the room by the bed caught officers' attention. It was a red backpack with books and documents inside. One item was a hard-backed black a 4 size notebook. Its neat-lined pages were filled with scrawled handwriting and black ink. The writing in this notebook made what was already a horrific scene all the more sinister. This notebook was a blueprint for murder. A detailed step-by-step exact plan for the brutal murder of Lisa and Joel Guy Sr. had all been meticulously planned, written down with scribbles and scratches out as the author changed their mind and considered the different options. A sick list of actions, each as disturbing as the next, to carry out against two human beings, all written in cold, blunt, emotional terms. The language used... The references to Guy's personal finances and knowledge of their plans limited the possible people could have written something like this. Their direct reference to themselves within their planning told detectives everything they needed to know. The only person who could have authored the vile notebook then went on to carry out its instructions was the person Lisa and Joel Sr. had loved, cherished and supported all their lives. It was Joel Michael Jr., their only son. Authorities in Knoxville, Tennessee, discovered a gruesome scene inside a home. A couple murdered and mutilated. Both suffered multiple vicious stab wounds, as well as dismemberment. Joel Jr. placed portions of the remains in an acid-based solution in an attempt to destroy evidence. And the Knox County Sheriff says their 28-year-old son is responsible. Joel Guy Jr. is accused of killing his parents, Lisa and Joel Sr., cutting them up and trying to dissolve them in acid. Investigators say they were last seen alive the day after Thanksgiving, which they celebrated with their son and three daughters. Lisa Guy's co-workers called police to do a welfare check, which led to them finding the couple's body parts all over the home. On November 29th, one day after the guys' bodies were found, their son, Joel Michael, was arrested by officers from the Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Office and the FBI as he left his apartment. He was taken to the Serious Crimes Unit, where he was photographed for evidence. Joel Michael was covered in bruises and scratches, with deep cuts to his hands. Wearing a white t-shirt and gray shorts down to his knees, The bruising on both upper arms was just visible under his sleeves. He had a deep cut to his left thumb, scratches on both hands, cuts that were just starting to heal and scab over. Looking at the palms of his hands, there was a deep cut on his right hand, again, early in the healing process. His injuries extended to other parts of his body. Inside his right elbow was a big scratch, bruising to the back top of both arms, Scratches and bruising on the top parts of his legs. Joel Michael gave no explanation. Lisa and Joel Sr.'s joint funeral was held on December 17th. 
2016, at the Gentry Griffey Funeral Chapel in Knoxville, a couple together for three decades who were still very much in love. For two people who were so genuine, honest, and caring, to lose their lives in such a horrible way was difficult for their family and friends to cope with. How the couple had died, the terror and fear they must have felt in their final moments, was difficult not to imagine and think about. The undignified way their bodies were treated after their deaths. The family requested donations to a local animal shelter in lieu of flowers. Lisa and Joel had been devoted to their own dog, now being looked after by family since their deaths. Joel Michael did not give any interviews to police detectives about the charges put to him. Using his right to remain silent, he chose not to explain the evidence inside the house that pointed to him. Joel Michael Guy Jr. had no criminal record. He had never been in trouble with the police before. He was the most unlikely of suspects to have carried out such a horrific crime. He was charged initially with two counts of first-degree murder and refused bond. Joel Michael would stay in custody until his trial. This case was one that had so many questions surrounding it. Why a son would exact such brutal violence on his own parents. Violence that didn't stop after he had taken their lives, but continued in attempts to conceal their bodies. Hide them from view in an attempt to enable him to get away with double murder. Joel Michael's trial took four years to come to court. His defense team challenged the multiple items of evidence and search warrants involving both Lisa and Joel Sr.'s home and Joel Michael's apartment in Baton Rouge. By September this year, they had run out of evidence to challenge. State Prosecutor's Assistant District Attorney General Leslie Nasios and Hector Sanchez made the decision not to pursue the death penalty against Joel Michael. Tennessee is a death penalty state, but their decision was for life in prison, with parole after 51 years. This would give Joel Michael opportunity to be released from prison age 79 years old, should he be found guilty. Before his trial even began, Joel Michael wanted to control the outcome. In a bizarre move, he submitted his own handwritten motion to the judge just two days before the jury were due to be chosen. The motion requested that Judge Sword sentence Joel Michael to the death penalty, should he be found guilty. Despite pleading not guilty and maintaining his innocence in these crimes, Joel Michael was asking the judge to sentence him to death if the jury returned a guilty verdict. No explanation was given with this motion. No extra narrative to indicate why he felt the need to make such a request. His defense team had refused to file the motion on his behalf. Judge Sword informed him he could not order the death penalty. It was the state prosecution who decided if the case would be a death penalty case, and only a jury could give that sentence. He told Joel Michael that the state cannot be pushed into trying the case as a death penalty case, regardless of how much he may prefer that outcome, to decades behind bars. The trial started on September 28, 2020, at the Knox County Criminal Court in Tennessee. Family and friends of Lisa and Joel Sr. had been waiting to see justice be served for a long time. The person on trial accused of the murder of their loved ones was one of their own. Joel Michael may not have been an active participant within his family circle, but he was still part of that family. It is a level of betrayal beyond any other 
especially when Lisa and Joel Sr. had done nothing but support their child in every way they could. The way that he repaid them was a violent and terrifying death before mutilating their bodies limb by limb. Listener, as a leader in the CBD industry, CBDMD is committed to providing high-quality, THC-free CBD oil products. Whether you're gunning for a raise or an Olympic gold medal, you need to stay at the top of your game. And with so many world-class professional athletes turning to CBDMD, you can be sure you're getting a safe, clean product. From tinctures to topicals to bath bombs and even pet products, they've got something for everyone. I personally am blown away by the CBD freeze on offer. I've been using it on my back and shoulders, and the soreness just seems to melt away in minutes. And hey, to make it even easier to discover the potential of CBD for yourself, CBDMD is offering our listeners 25% off your purchase when you use the promo code OBSCURA at checkout. Once again, that's CBDMD.com, promo code OBSCURA. For 25% off your order of premium CBD oil products from CBDMD, For many of us, the holidays will look different this year. Family and friend reunions might not be the same. That shouldn't stop us from feeling close. That's why I'm giving my loved ones the most meaningful gift this year. A chance to tell their story and share memories using StoryWorth. Personally, I really enjoy its unique questions and the way it helps to build meaningful memories with loved ones. StoryWorth is an online service that helps your loved ones share stories through thought-provoking questions about their memories and personal thoughts. It's a fun new way to engage with family, especially those you can't see in person. Every week, StoryWorth emails your family member different story prompts, questions you've never thought to ask, like, what's a small decision you made that ended up having a big impact on your life? And if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? Reading the weekly stories is fun and makes your family feel close even if you're not together. After one year, StoryWorth will compile all your stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that's shipped for free. I plan on keeping mine on the living room bookshelf as a way to dig up old memories. Give your loved ones the gift of spending time together, wherever you live, with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to StoryWorth.com Obscura. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's StoryWorth.com Obscura. For $10 off. All of the evidence in this case we submit to you points to the defendant as the killer of his parents. And one of the things that we consider in, uh, in this calculation is, uh, you know, the times of death. The medical examiner and Dr. Marks, the forensic anthropologist, can't tell you how long uh, Joel and Lisa were uh, were in those. How long their body parts were liquefying in those tubs? They they can't make they can't make that determination. We know from uh, receipts found in Lisa's belongings where she was on November the twenty sixth, and that she was alive at some point. And we know that uh, from a receipt found in her purse at the scene that she was at this Walmart in Turkey Creek um, at 12.18 in the afternoon. 
making the purchases uh, of the items that were found in the foyer. They were able to, to match up the items listed on the receipt with things that were in the foyer floor. We know that before that, she had gone to PetSmart in Turkey Creek in the same little shopping center to get, uh, you know, to get dog food for her dog. And we know she made it home because her car was found in the driveway and uh, the groceries were in the foyer. Joel and Lisa Guy were dead by 3.35 p.m. And we believe the uh, proof will show that after the defendant tended his injuries, he went to work on their bodies and uh, did what he did to them. The forensic anthropologist has a nice name for what he did. It's called disarticulation. That's an elegant name for uh, cutting off, cutting off their arms and legs and Lisa's head. The evidence left inside the guy's house gave detectives the means to create an accurate timeline. Shopping receipts with dates and timestamps could be matched with CCTV footage confirming who purchased those items. The date that had become the focus of the tragic timeline was Saturday, November 26th. The CCTV footage of Lisa leaving the local Walmart store closest to her home at 12.18 p.m. has an eerie feel to it when watched. A mother and a grandmother going about her day, getting the groceries for her family. As she innocently pushed her cart towards her car, she had no idea what was waiting for her at home. Police and prosecutors believe that Joel Michael had planned to murder his father while his mother was out shopping. He would have known his father was the biggest threat to his plans, the one of the pair who had size and power to potentially stop him. Joel Michael sat in court every day, wearing a dark suit and tie, with a white shirt. His once long hair now cut in a close crew cut. His trial was one of the first trials to take place in Tennessee under COVID-19 restrictions. To keep everybody safe, masks needed to be worn by everyone inside the courtroom. Protective screens had been installed around the judge's bench and the witness stand. The jury had been separated out, half being seated in the usual jury area and the other half in a reserved area of the courtroom, normally available to those watching the trial. Joel Michael wore a face shield rather than a mask like everyone else. The judge needed to see the face of a defendant. They wanted to see what responses and reactions the accused had during different parts of a trial. Their behavior is helping to inform an imagery of jury members. One they will incorporate into their deliberations and decision making, whether they are consciously aware of it or not. Throughout the trial, Joel Michael didn't wince at the details of his parents' murders. He didn't show shock, disgust, or pain at seeing and hearing graphic accounts of what was done to his parents. He was a son on trial for the gruesome murder of the two people who raised and supported him throughout his entire life. He claimed he did not take their lives, yet he had no explanation for the mountain of evidence against him and only him. There was no alternative suspect, someone else it could have been. His defense team didn't have another person to suggest to the jury It was just Joel Michael. The appalling details he heard, the images he looked at so intently on the big projector screen, 
They appeared to have no impact on him at all. As the state's medical examiner took the stand to describe the injuries she found on Lisa and Joel Sr.'s remains, Joel Michael's demeanor did not alter. The first thing to note with Mr. Guy is um, his remains had been dismembered. The arms had been removed at the shoulders. The legs had been removed at the hips. His head was completely skeletonized, and there was some area uh, of defect of the bone of the, the forehead. Um, the, the bone in that area was in such poor um, condition that it was impossible to tell whether that was from the chemicals in which the, the skull had been or whether it was from blunt trauma. Um, there was skin remaining primarily on the back of Mr. Guy, approximately from his lower neck around his buttocks, and the remainder of the skin was gone. The remainder of the skin had been dissolved by chemicals, and with the skin being gone, it basically exposed bare muscle in some of the subcutaneous tissue. So the, the remains were in a, a, a very complex and, and difficult uh, state um, to, uh, to examine and to describe. In documenting the wounds, um, I, I have to say that I have to give a number of wounds as an at least, because there was uh, so much um, loss of tissue uh, so, you know, even some of the arms, uh, Mr. Guy's arms were down to bone and some of the bone had begun to dissolve. There could have been more wounds. The wounds that I could see and document primarily were on Mr. Guy's back where the skin still was relatively intact. And on the skin of his back, he had what I identified as 34 sharp force injuries. And sharp force injuries are either stabs or cuts. These sharp force injuries, uh, again, extended from um, up near about the area of his shoulder down to his buttocks. They were on both sides. The wounds ranged from about one inches in length to about seven inches in length, and the maximum depth was about six inches. Associated with these stab wounds, I identified injuries to the liver, lungs, and kidneys, and ribs. And is it fair to say that he was placed face down in, in the in the tub? At some point, he became to be face down, whether he was placed that way or, you know, the, the boy, deceased bodies will have some buoyancy when they're in fluid. Um, so, you know, I can say that he was, uh, when he was discovered, he was face down, how he came to be that way, I can't say. Where were his limbs found? His limbs were found um, underneath the torso, um, except for a portion of his, I believe it was his left foot. Um, and that, that was another area where his skin was still relatively intact. So his back was, um, of, of the dismembered body parts, His the back of his torso was on the top. A portion of his left foot was also sticking up out of the chemicals, and what remained of um, the arms and uh, his other leg were underneath this portion in the chemical. I would like to uh, direct your attention to uh, Mrs. Guy's autopsy. 
So like Mr. Guy, uh, Mrs. Guy was also dismembered. Uh, there was some differences uh, in the uh, degree to which she was dismembered and the way she was dismembered. Her head was uh, completely severed from her body. Um, her arms were disarticulated at the shoulders and her legs were disarticulated at the knees. So in comparison to Mr. Guy who had his legs disarticulated at the hips, Mrs. Guy's um, legs were at the knees. So her, her thighs were still intact. Her thighs were still attached onto her body, but her head was completely severed and her arms were completely severed. Mrs. Guy's head was found in a, uh, a large pot in liquid in the kitchen. Um, the, the liquid in the pot um, had a slightly different character to it than the liquid in uh, the plastic tubs. It, it didn't have the strong chemical odor. It had a slight odor of decomposition, but it did not have the chemical odor like the, the bins upstairs did. And the skin that remained, the skin and flesh that remained on her scalp was different. It did not have um, the, um, the, 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 the top layer of skin was still intact. In other words, the skin looked like it had heat artifact or what we call thermal artifact as opposed to a chemical artifact. The hair was still there as well. Um, and so that those, those were the primary differences. Um, Miss Guy had multiple sharp force injuries on her back. She had at least 25. And again, I'm having to do a little bit of a hedge because of the, the, the degree to which the remains were altered. Um, again, the wounds were on both sides of her back. They were approximately six to seven inches deep. They included injuries to the heart, so the right ventricle or the right side of her heart, the aorta in her abdomen, which is the major blood vessel that, that leaves the heart and feeds the, um, the lower portion of the body. Both lungs were injured, the left kidney, the liver, and her third uh, thoracic vertebra, so a bone in the spine also appeared to be injured. Would you describe these wounds as uh, uh, before death, perimortem? Uh, for the ones that I could tell, yes. The disrespect for human life in this case is overpowering. The dignity of two individuals totally discarded. They were attacked, mutilated, and dismembered. Torsos and limbs folded into plastic tubs, submerged in a foul concoction of acid and bleach purposefully created to be as effective as possible in dissolving and stripping the flesh straight from the bone. The strongest evidence that secured Joel Michael's fate was his own words. The notebook found in the backpack in the room he was staying while at his parents' home for Thanksgiving was damning, powerful, and incredible evidence. And I found the notebook. And in the notebook, there was... Uh a writing, and I want to go through it with you a little bit because uh, it's kind of hard to see like this, but we'll start from the first line. Get killing knives. Quiet. Multiple. Get carving knives to make small pieces. Get sledgehammer. Crush bones. Bring blender and food grinder, grind meat. Get bleach, denature proteins. 
Well, there was bleach, several tubs of bleach in the kitchen. Get plastic bin for denaturation process. And uh, I guess that's, uh, that means for dissolving uh, your parents. Does not matter where they're killed. Just get rid of bloody spots to prevent evidence of time of death. Not the mattress or couches. Get rid of bodies inside the house. There and my DNA already there. Because, of course, he had been visiting. So his DNA would be in the house necessarily. I, I guess that's what that means. Flush chunks down toilet, not garbage disposal. No evidence, ladies and gentlemen, that, uh, that he did that. Uh, but the next line, get plastic sheeting for disposal process. There is evidence that there was plastic sheeting at the scene on the bed uh, where Joel and Lisa guys slept. Get hollow point bullets just in case. Will be seen buying bullets. Just use computer room gun. Check to make sure there are bullets, last resort. There were no gunshot wounds to the victims. He's not alive to claim her half of the insurance money, all mine, $500,000. You will hear evidence through Jennifer Whited and through documents from Jacob Engineering that Lisa Guy did have an insurance policy. Uh, flood the house. Covers up forensic evidence. No evidence that he flooded the house. Turn heater up as high as it goes. Speeds decomposition. Again, uh, thermostats were in the 90s, both upstairs and downstairs. Bleach reacts with luminol, just like blood. Douse area with bleach. Big sprayer. There was a big sprayer in a box on the kitchen floor. I don't know that it had been opened, and I can't tell you that the state will prove that there was evidence that he doused the area with bleach. Uh, but there was lye, and uh, he mentioned it says trash compactor question mark. The next line is body gives time of death, alibi. Don't have to get rid of body if there's no forensic evidence on the body. His fingerprints and DNA. And that brings us to the severed hands. Um, the severed hands. Drop something down the garbage disposal to break it. Get him on the ground, or get him on the ground fixing it. Kill him with the knife. Clean up mess from him before she gets home. Kill her with knife. Kill the dog after. The next line is place her in shower, turn on hot water, and point at her to get rid of forensics. Remove her clothes and take them with me for disposal. Place hair curler with flammable paper and flammable containers of gasoline in four locations. His killing room, her killing room. Timer for flammables set for Friday at 10 a.m. Sunlight masks fire, but not smoke. Everyone at work, so they can't report it. 
Ultraviolet light shows fingerprints. Check mail before leaving. To get rid of blood, use peroxide hemoglobin and bleach DNA. Destruction of bodies. Composition of body, 20% fat, 20% protein, 55% water, and 5% other components. There is no emotion at all in any of these words written by Joel Michael. This is a blueprint of his perfect murder plan. Not only does it record step-by-step how to brutally stab his parents to death, it lists his action steps for stripping them, cutting off their limbs, transporting them to the master bedroom, and submerging them in a mix of acids and bleach. This isn't a fantasy notebook, as sick as that would be. It is a real-life plan that he mostly followed and carried out. The idea that this notebook was not Joel Michaels and this sick, twisted, depraved slaughter plan had not been written by him is absurd. The majority of the steps listed in this notebook were carried out. The plans were followed. The preparation had been carried out. Purchasing items in different locations. Bringing the big blue tubs and chemicals with him to his parents' home. The murders were clinical, cold and bloody. He knew exactly what his next step was at all times. Not everything in his notebook was carried out. Not all those small details he had so carefully thought about and included in his intrusive list made it into reality. Flammables and timers, the thermostats being up so high, all the extra fan heaters plugged in around the house, Joe Michael intended for the house to burn down, fire so ferocious all the evidence left inside would disappear. His notebook plan included the setting of a timer for the following Friday at 10 a.m., a time and day for the house to begin to burn. After five full days submerged in a cocktail of chemicals, his parents' bodies would have plenty time to dissolve. To be so small and so damaged, the addition of fire would ensure they would never be found. Joel Michael's plan didn't make any provision for anyone missing his parents and coming looking for them. Murdered on the Saturday, he planned for the house to set alight on Friday. With no thought of anyone trying to contact his parents in the meantime and uncovering his ghastly deeds, the jury heard very little from the defense. That was because there wasn't a defense. No opening statement had been put forward at the start of this trial. Joel Michael's main defense attorney, John Halstead, had thanked the jury for their time and asked them to listen closely to the evidence. That was all he could say. Witnesses were questioned to clarify points with no real cross-examination. The defense for Joel Michael wasn't inadequate. The evidence against him was overwhelming and very difficult to refute. The closing statement was brief. That weekend, Joel Guy was outgoing, friendly, and happy. In a way, Michelle Tyler had never seen him before. Outgoing friendly, and happy. That was not a man about to commit a homicide. And remember the facts of the case. His father was stabbed at least 41 times, his mother at least 32 times. That is anger. That is rage. 
that is not happy and outgoing. We heard family testimony that they plan to cut him off financially at Christmas. This was not Christmas. This was not when that was going to occur. That's why we have to look at every fact to see if this adds up. Because just from that very start, outgoing, friendly, and happy does not add up to what happened here. Rage, anger, and death. Now, the state tells us to store videos, Ace Hardware, well, you can see him purchasing the, the um, food-grade hydrogen peroxide. You can't. You can't tell what that is. You can't tell what any of those containers are from Ace. We don't have a receipt. We don't know what was bought at Ace Hardware. The notebook, they tell us, well, they did note DNA on the outside of the notebook. So that means on, on at some point, someone touched the outside of that notebook. What about DNA on the writing on the inside? When you write, your hand's often in contact with the paper. Touch DNA would be all over that. That's the thing that you want to know, isn't it? Is his DNA on the part where there's a writing? We didn't do that. Page at five pages, we could have done that. Hand on the paper when you're writing. They didn't do that. His car being seen by Vigilant Technology in Mississippi. Newsflash, he did come up for Thanksgiving. Newsflash, he did go home. That tells us absolutely nothing. Clearly, we know at some point he hurt his hand, but that doesn't tell us when or how he hurt his hand. The fact he's getting medicine for his hand does not tell us anything about the homicide. And again, on the DNA, they get to pick and choose what they tested. Kim Lowe decided she just wasn't going to test some things that she decided weren't relevant. For example, the kitchen glove. Well, of course, if a kitchen glove's in a house, you might have used it at any point. So what's the significance of testing that? I said, what about the kitchen glove in the master bathroom? Do you cook in the master bathroom? Do you do dishes in the master bathroom? And that's where the bodies were? Ah, don't need to test that. That's not going to tell us anything at all. The clothes of Ms. Guy... We're not even going to look at them. We're told they were cut off. That means someone's hand is coming into contact with the clothes, and we know exactly where they're coming into contact with the clothes because it's exactly where they're being cut. Ah, no need to test that for touch DNA. Didn't even look at it. But then, 10 days before trial, suddenly they decide they have to test two more knives, and suddenly, in a rush, they can get us two more knives worth of DA, DNA. They pick and choose. We just don't know if it's all accurate. You notice we didn't have any questions for the medical examiner or the pathologist. 
We don't deny that this was a terrible, awful thing that happened to the parents. The question is, did Joel Guy do it? Not, was this bad? So we didn't waste your time asking additional questions about that. We saw a ton of pictures. It felt like we saw everything in that house four times. Picture, 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 video. None of it really had anything to do. Flight. Yes, he went back to Louisiana. That was the plan all along, wasn't it? Son going to come up for Thanksgiving, son going back home. That's all we know. We don't know anyone was chasing him back to Louisiana. And where did he go? Where was he arrested? At his apartment. He wasn't fleeing. He wasn't hiding. He went home. We believe the state has not proven any of these charges beyond a reasonable doubt. We ask that you find Mr. Guy not guilty. The outcome of this case, the fate of Joel Michael, was a given from the moment this trial opened. The state prosecution's case had been solidly built. On top of mountains of evidence that pointed in only one direction, the prosecution had presented the jury with a motive. A son used to being looked after by his parents financially. An adult, yet he didn't have to worry about finding and keeping a job or budgeting to meet his outgoings. He had an easy life. Family members had testified to discussions they'd had with Lisa and Joel about the couple's plans to no longer support Joel Michael like this after they retired and moved up to Sir Goinsville. They weren't going to be able to, with their own income reducing down to only their pensions. The closeness of this family, the devotion Lisa had for her son, and she would have warned Joel Michael, given him time to process and understand their decision. Joel Michael knew of these plans before Thanksgiving. The financial motive is strengthened by Joel Michael's actions the day after he murdered his parents. On the Sunday before he left their home to drive back to Baton Rouge, Joel Michael made a number of financial transactions. Payments from his parents' account that paid his utility bills for months in advance. That paid a year's rent in advance. A life insurance payout takes time. It's not an automatic process, and Joel Michael needed to make sure he didn't run into financial problems. While he was waiting, the notebook evidence was powerful in showcasing his premeditation for these appalling crimes. Clear, logical planning with forethought, consideration, and decision-making. Circumstantially, ladies and gentlemen, when you consider that that notebook came from a backpack that was found in the room where his sister uh, testified that he was staying on the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, it makes sense that it's the defendant's notebook and the defendant's writing. I would also point out to you that inside that backpack were uh, several books that uh, you saw in uh, technician uh, Sandlin uh, published to you. And on the inside of those books uh, was the defendant's name, Joel Guy. Um, so the books that were in the backpack uh, belonged to him. The notebook had his DNA on it. And the backpack was found in the room where he was staying. So uh, you don't have to be, uh, you know, just a, 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 an expert in logic to make the connections that the notebook is his. But I would also like for you to consider the writing itself in the notebook. And there are references uh, in those writings. You know, there are references in the notebook that indicate that uh, 
The person who is writing this is the defendant. Uh, why else would he say that his DNA would be found inside the house? I mean, logically, uh, why would anybody other than the defendant write something like that in the notebook that has the defendant's DNA on the outside of it, uh, in the notebook that's found in the defendant's backpack, along with other books that belong to the defendant? Uh, throughout this writing, he makes references to things that only he would know about. His mother's insurance policy, the fact that he would be the beneficiary, uh, the fact that uh, he had done calculations to uh, examine his parents' assets, his father's assets, his mother's assets, uh, the language all mine, I get the whole thing. I mean, who else other than the defendant would be writing these things in this notebook that has his DNA on it that was found in his backpack along with his books, uh, the backpack being in the room where he stayed the weekend of these murders. It sounds so, uh, so terrible to think that you could kill your mother and your father for money, but that's really pretty much what it all boils down to. Let's talk about how hard it was to kill mom and dad. I want you to think about the last moments that Joel Guy Sr. spent on this earth. He was attacked by his own son. He had to fight him off, and it was a fierce fight. You saw the evidence in that room. I don't have to show it to you again. You saw his hands, both of his hands. At some point, that man had his hands on the knife that his son was using to kill him. And he knew it was his son who faced him. He was stabbed in the gut. He knew, he knew his attacker. Think about that. Think about that. Think about the blood in that room. Think about that corner. Think about the thrashing about. It's no surprise that the defendant was hurt. No surprise at all he was hurt in that struggle. And he must have been feeling some pain when he had to kill his poor mother. There she was at Walmart at 1218. How tragic that your last moments on earth were at a Walmart. Buying bacon and sausage and food to prepare a nice breakfast probably for your dear son who was home for one of his few visits. He's used to having the support and uh, care uh, from his mother, primarily, taking care of his needs, providing him with an apartment, with utilities, with a car, gas money, paying his bills, his tuition, paying for his books, paying for everything. He's used to having her pay for everything. Watching her put on her jacket because it was cold. It's very heartbreaking. Watching her push that buggy, knowing where she's going. There's no one else who could have carried out these attacks, mutilations, and foul dismemberments. Few who attended the courtroom during this trial were expecting anything other than Joel Michael being found guilty of charges against him. His trial had lasted for four days. 27 witnesses had given testimony. There had been over 700 pieces of evidence. 
The final tally of charges against Joel Michael were two counts of first-degree murder, three counts of felony first-degree murder, and two counts of abuse of a corpse. When the jury came back into the courtroom, less than 24 hours after they had started deliberations, there was little doubt on what their verdict was going to be. On October 2nd, 2020, Joel Michael Guy Jr. was found guilty on all seven counts. At sentencing that same day, Lisa and Joel Guy's family were able to tell Judge Sword how these murders had affected them and their immediate families. Their dignity and open gratitude to the courts, the judge and prosecutors and the jury for enabling justice to be served was admirable. Judge Sword told the court the mutilations inflicted on the bodies of Lisa and Joel Sr. was the worst case of abuse of a corpse he had ever seen in his 25-year career so far. He told Joel Michael he saw no potential for rehabilitation. He told him how he had shown no remorse or despair during the trial. Instead, he looked proud of what he had accomplished. Joel Michael was sentenced to two life sentences to run consecutively. He will spend the rest of his life in prison with no chance of ever being released. On November 19th, back in the same court, he was sentenced to a further four years on the abuse of corpse charges. After his request for the death penalty and a guilty verdict, there is more satisfaction that instead, he will live inside of a box, surrounded by bars, for the rest of his life. All around him will be people and constant noise. He won't be able to hide away somewhere quiet on his own. He will have no control over his own environment. Some individuals defy any logic, any understanding, or any possible mitigation. Joel Michael Jr. is one of those individuals. <laughs> 